First there was darkness. Then came the strangers. They were a race as old as time itself. They had mastered the ultimate technology, the ability to alter physical reality by will alone. They called this ability tuning. But they were dying. Their civilization was in decline. And so they abandoned their world, seeking a cure for their own mortality. Their endless journey brought them to a small blue world in the farthest corner of the galaxy. Our world. Here they thought they had finally found what they had been searching for. podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome to the podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. And as you may know, typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And guys, he was here a minute ago, but you know, he hustled off camera real quick saying he needed to check his itinerary. For his upcoming vacation to Shell Beach. Now, given how chaotic travel planning can be right now, it makes sense that he'd be concerned. Hopefully, unlike we discussed last week with Vera, Shell Beach isn't closed off for American travelers like Canada is. However, in the meantime, allow me not just to welcome you back into our series on learning how to lose titled In the Morning, but also to welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the show, Press Secretary for the Fear of God 2020 Presidential Campaign and longtime friend of the fog, ladies and gentlemen, it is Ian Olson. Ian! Ian, Booyah! my friend! All right! Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> welcome back it is, to it the is show. It is so good to be back. It's so good to have you, my friend. It's, I mean, you are a bomb I, for the soul. A bomb? A bomb for the soul? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> a bomb. <laughs> bomb. Lip bomb. Like a lip bomb for the soul. A bomb. Yes. As you know, my friend, we got to do this. Listeners can hear us. And by us, I mean you and me. And Riri discussed the ideas of in the morning at length on our Infinity War conversation that you guessed it on mm-hmm. from just a couple of decades ago. Wait, did I say decades? <laughs> I meant you I meant, do this a I long meant year. <laughs> I meant years <laughs> because time is a face <laughs> on the water and Ka is a wheel, and this series is meant to help us meditate 
on loss as we navigate life inside a pandemic, giving even deeper resonance to our regular mantra of assessing what scares us in order to find what saves us. But as I typically do, I am getting ahead of myself because here at the fear of God, we explore. We don't explain. We, we talk a lot, but we don't explain <laughs> except for right now. When I explain that you listener, you Ian can listen to the fear of God at your nearest podcast platform. You can watch the fear of God on YouTube and you can browse the fear of God on the web at the fear of God podcast.com, wherein you'll find episode archives and merch, including cell phone cases, t-shirts, campaign buttons, face masks for the love of God. Put one on magnets, pillows, read, oh, <laughs> read <laughs> brother. Hey buddy. How's that? <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> you look, you, I don't know that you look like what you think you might look like. Cause what you look like <laughs> is one shady dude at the park that you do not want your kids standing around. <laughs> I was going, well, I mean, I was going for strangers. So I guess you do. I guess just don't talk to strangers, yes. you know? So, yes. Yeah, that's it. You nailed it. <laughs> you nailed it nailed it stranger <laughs> danger oh man i cannot wear this thing oh hey, welcome back to the show brother Hi. i don't know if you've heard we have a guest today what's up ian or ethan as our uh, as our loving friends and some I, of our loving listeners know you I, I i actually got confused i wasn't sure who i was <laughs> Uh, for the duration of our time here, so that that's um, that's a going theme lately on the show. Is yes, who yes. are we? Yes, we're, exactly. Um, that's an imprinting good. error, is what that is. So uh, <laughs> yes, uh, Reed, would you like to welcome our other guest real quick? Yes, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. See business section. Ooh la la, what do we got here? <laughs> you got you got to go next time, Ian. You got to pick it up next time. You got to make the face. Oh. You're like, oh my god, Beetlejuice is here, face. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one like that. The oh my god, Beetlejuice is here face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's his. What Mine's you got for like... us? <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So, all right, listeners, listen. We should have done this a while. Uh, <laughs> we we should have done this a while ago, but but we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this now. Okay. So it is time. We are nearing the end of season two of The Leftovers and therefore the end of phase two of Hashtag In The Morning. So what that means is that we're going to be chiming in on a couple of more years of Hashtag 2020-2020. So you need to go, and you need to go quickly because we only Do have it. a couple of weeks to vote. Get so, to the chopper. Uh, get to the chopper. So you've got to go to fearofgodpodcast.com, thefearofgodpodcast.com. You need to click on the banner at the top. You need to, That will take you to the surveys where you need to vote on your favorite horror films from the years 2011 and 2012. Yes, we are all the way up to 2011 and 2012. So I want you to go all the way to the fear of God podcast.com vote for your favorite horror films and we'll be announcing those when hashtag in the morning phase two concludes in just a few weeks so get to the chopper good job Reed. Did you, did you find your notes <laughs> I, I was gonna play it so professional and just transition but yeah i did <laughs> okay cool <laughs> thank you uh, zoom knows professional here zoom knows emails for stickers look here's the thing we want your email address okay just end of story we're not bombarding for it. So go to the website, the aforementioned website, where it says subscribe, put your email there, and hit enter. And here's the thing. You'll survive. I did it. Worked out just fine. 
I am, I'm living proof, uh, that it works. Okay. Just like guy on the pillar. So we'll be checking that. And once you're in, we'll email you for a mailing address. We'll mail you a fear of God. It's alive sticker designed by Jacob Hunt. Some of you have already received your stickers and you've been posting them on your socials. Speaking of which though, Nathan, what happens with them posting and tagging us? Oh, Ian, I am so glad you asked because that perfectly teased me up for a new contest we've got going on. I don't know if you listened to last week, Ian. I don't know. You got a lot going on in life. I, I feel you, brother, but I don't know how caught up you are. But last week we launched a brand new contest. Um, and that is, I've just dubbed it right now because I like dubbing things, things sharing is caring. Okay. So how the fear of God is going to win in November is by you listeners, viewers, maybe viewers sharing the love. Okay. <laughs> you can do that. By taking the sticker that we're going to send you for that email that Ian just told you about, slap it on a, I don't know, a, a, a Captain America shield, slap it on your spouse, on your car, on your computer, I don't know what, slap it on something, and take a picture of it, and post it, and and, and tag us. Please, do that. So, um, all jokiness aside, which is impossible, but tag us in something. You know, it can be a post with a sticker. It can be a post with merch. If that's what you want, it can be a post about the show. Uh, specifically, what we're after is things from specifically 2020, you know, episodes that you love. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe a movie conversation gave you new insight, a new angle on a film. Uh, maybe something absolutely ridiculous that you just enjoyed. Post about it. Um, tag us in it and you're going to be entered to win, uh, a fear of God 2020 presidential campaign shirt designed by Jacob Hunt. The only other caveat to the contest is we want you to email us some of these stories as well. And we're going to be assembling some of those to share on the show. Did I cover those bases? Okay. Riri? That was, God. that was fantastic. I, think I don't no- even like the beach and I want to go to shell beach. I need I, right. I know. Here. I know. I, I totally understand. But before we can do that. Yeah. Peter juice, Peter juice, Peter juice. It's showtime. <laughs> oh, God. Ian experienced some version of tuning or something. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> all right. Oh, okay, but wait, but wait, but, but wait. I don't know that we need wait, to. Wait. But no, no, no. First things what? first. What? Actually, actually, technically, second things second. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, everyone once again for joining us for this week's hashtag TV guideposts where we are once again visiting city of Chardon, Texas and the national park known as Miracle and maybe to places above and beyond all of that as we welcome our very special guest Ian Olson and uh, your usual co-hosts Nathan and myself to this week's installment of The Leftovers Season 2 Episodes 7 and 8 on this week's hashtag TV guideposts. Ian, Ian, you're here. And so, I, so I we made a real, uh, intentional effort to have you on roughly the middle of this run. We're working on you're, you're yeah. going to be, you were on infinity war. Um, spoiler alert. We're going to have you back on for end game. Um, presuming we all last that long. Um, and we wanted <laughs> to have you back on here in the middle um mainly in part to rehash some of these themes we're looking at um and also to kind of I, i'm curious and i know reed is too shares that curiosity kind of your take uh, i know you're a mutual 
part of the uh, Lindelof Appreciation Fan Club. Um, kind of get your take on the leftovers now that we're uh, almost two thirds of the way through it on the show. And specifically today, we're discussing episode seven, A Most Powerful Adversary, and episode eight, International Assassin. So before we dive too specifically into the specific specifics of those two, just generally speaking, um, what are your, what are some of your feelings about the leftovers? Um, this is my absolutely first time through it at all. And so I don't have a very thick account, I, I guess, of how I feel about it. You know, Kristen keeps asking me like, what do you think now? You know? And, um, <laughs> and you're like, you're, back you're, off. You're, <laughs> I feel what I feel, okay? <laughs> Let the episode finish, okay? Then I'll tell you my thoughts. <laughs> um, the theme song isn't even over. Um, so, I, I, I think that season two is monumentally superior in many ways to season one, for the most part. And that's not to say that I, like, strongly disliked season one, it just feels like a soft reboot as of season two. And, and honestly, for a long time with season one, following uh, the pilot really caught my attention. And I mean, it just really, it really roughed up and pepper sprayed my feels in a big way. Um, wow. Th- there were some plainclothes federal agents uh, pulling me off wow. the street Here with, we go. with that one. I'm glad you're here. here. It's been, it been ten minutes, man. We yeah. went there. It's great. You know, nor- normal, normal, typical uh, democratic procedural stuff like that. So, sure. um, um, but then I felt I had this meta question for the next several episodes after that. Like, am I supposed to feel the way that I do right now about this? How it feels kind of meandering in a way. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. that could be it. I mean, that's what everyone is doing right right now post sudden departure. And it wasn't really until we got to um, kind of Cairo, but episodes following Cairo where I thought, okay, there is there is indeed something substantial going on here mm. that I can kind of like hook my affections onto. Um, mm. And I really enjoyed Prodigal Son Returns. But then uh, there was a whole new horizon opened with season two and from the absolutely just gonzo, like, 2001-esque, like, beginning of the yeah. first episode. Um, <laughs> right. w- which is such a clear, like, I don't know what this means, but it's cool. Um, right. You know, and like, okay, all right, do, do it, do it, fine. Um, I am enjoying it. I don't, it just, sorry, sorry, just, like, my, my audacity's always on. I'm You're not fine. sure, I'm not sure yet what, are referring to when they're like definitely definitely one of the two best tv shows ever made you know like that guy i'm like okay get your finger out of my face and i I don't yet see what you're what you're talking about and i'm not trying to diss it but i don't i don't know where that level hyperbole is coming from sir well yeah well you know what you what? go ahead, Nathan. What, you, no, oh, no, okay. No. It's a thing. Ian, you think I'm scared to do battle with you? <laughs> I am so desperate to do battle. So let's go back. 
let's go effing die. <laughs> what I was picturing yeah. was Ian evidently on, walks into Walmart where people just like come definitely <laughs> <laughs> Definitely one of the two best. He's like, whoa! Uh, I was just looking for some spicy nacho Doritos, y'all. I just did. I did not oh, need look, the I'm finger. Just, I'm just here for the granola, okay? And also, wear a mask, please, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's your mask? Put on a mask. <laughs> mask. Put your finger out of my face. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, no, Karen, uh, I didn't read your post on Reddit. Just leave me alone, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean like I I got to I got to say that like the more that I'm in the thick of this show, I do think there is a particular sensibility and I think I'm even coming to a place to where I would almost define it and that's this sort of those who are really comfortable and I would even dare say like galvanized and inspired by metaphors, particularly ones that leave you with a sense of melancholy rather than a sense of deliberate hope. Um, and I think Leftovers is kind of geared towards that. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you, Ian, have sensibilities that wouldn't align with that. But I, I think I'm becoming more and more aware as like my, my wife has watched it now and she had some, you know, relatively mixed feelings about it in general. Uh, Vera wasn't happy. Yeah. Vera was on the show last week and she also was kind of, you know, sort of mixed feelings about the show. And I think it's just a very particular sensibility that if you're if you're on board with that wavelength can be very galvanizing. But if you're not on board with that wavelength, for whatever reason, not saying that. You don't get the show or anything. That's not the implication. It's just if if that's not if that's not speaking to you in that moment, there it, it's a very particular kind of taste, like you know well, any anything and, else. And that's one of the things that like I am kind of just <laughs> transparently confused about because when we were talking about doing this together, you know, I told Nathan like, dude, sign me up for melancholy and and despair. Yes, right on. Um, <laughs> because I just have like that magnetism to me for whatever reason that that perverse enjoyment of like people being severely bummed out and like that's right. like that's what I wanted Endgame to you know what my major disappointment with uh, Captain America Civil War was like that no one died and that there wasn't like subsequent like grieving over uh. hero losses <laughs> and the fracturing of the family um it's like, twisted. I want my Marvel dark, okay? I want to go dark. I, that's You got the not, DCEU not for Zach that. Not Snyder dark. I, no, 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 no. <laughs> I want it to be good, though. That's the problem. So, um... Yes. Wow. Yes. Uh, I, that's... It, come, come at me, bro. No, Give me your Justice no, League. Give me your I'm, bat I'm, v soups. <laughs> I, I will, I will currently, at least in your, in your current state of mind, uh, uh, maybe, maybe disagree on your on your leftovers take, but your, your, your DC movie take is you're not going to get controversy here. Well, it's, um, and it's not even a full take. It's, it's, it's right, just I know, like, I know. I'm never sure exactly how bummed I'm supposed to be at any moment in the leftovers, like severely or, <laughs> or like limping, you know, um, both. Maybe I just, just both. pick one. Okay. Yeah. In the spirit of that, let's, let's <laughs> zoom in a little bit on, sure. Uh, you know, since you're sort of rising to the occasion here, a most powerful adversary, um, <laughs> um, which is, uh, tonally or rather, uh, narratively specifically about the, the relationship between Kevin and Patty. Kevin. 
She, <laughs> she pooped on him, Kevin. 16 years of marriage never asked me to poop oh on him. Oh, my God. <laughs> All the wonderful moments in this show. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one. That's, that's it, huh? It's the delivery. It's the delivery. <laughs> it just gets me every that's time. A, See, you're talking about how, All right, it's, how sad and maudlin it is. I find it uh, just hysterical. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, read. Find us a place to land. Sure, on sure, sure. Episode okay. seven. Okay, so I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start getting into a couple of things that I really, you know, that I really like. Um. Uh. So first of all, I want to talk because she's largely absent from the episode. I want to talk for a moment about Nora. Um. I sympathize with Nora's freakout, yeah. and admittedly, Kevin had the worst timing in the world. But it, particularly on this second go round. I was very frustrated at Nora's insistence to him earlier, like, you can tell me whatever, and I'll be able to take it. And she's clearly wrong. And it's a lack of self-awareness on her part, because the moment he busted out with, I'm seeing a dead woman, she's out. And admittedly, yes, his timing was terrible, but she leaves. Leaves him handcuffed to the bed, keys under the pillow, but that's it. After that, she is just gone. And uh, and so again, I, I sympathize, but I also is it, it just solidifies that Nora is just any version of okayness she has. She's just a house of cards. So um, that you know those those kind of that's kind of my formal thoughts on on uh, Nora and the the difficulties that I have with with her character. Her that having been said, I really really love this episode and the way it creates a crucible for the dynamic between Kevin and Patty. Um, that like so much, I just love the way they've done this whole Patty's not really there. And Mm -hmm. I remember thinking when I was trying to conceptualize like, well, what would I do if I had this voice that was there? And, and, and of course my mind would try to imagine like, oh, well, I would just do my best to ignore them, but they do a pretty good job of seeing how you can't really ignore her. She interjects at all the wrong, all the wrong moments. Um, she says very infuriating things and you really feel for him because you're like, you want for him to reach this place to where just like, I'm not talking to you and I'm not giving you any attention. But when that little voice is like popping into your head, every few, don't tell him, don't tell him, you know, like it's, oh, yeah. so anyway, what did she say? Well, she says, don't tell her because she's I, no, talking no, about I, Jill. That's but, okay. Yeah. You don't need tell to explain her. It. I was, yeah, don't there tell go. her. There you go. <laughs> Don't tell her. <laughs> you done did it now, Kevin. Um, <laughs> going to be a rough one. Well, it's funny because just uh, two weeks ago. Yeah. Time time is a face on the water. Like you said already. Um, Reed, you and I had conversed about the nature of Patty. And, you know. Yes. Clearly knowing, as listeners do, that you have finished the series once more. Um, and I had not, I had forgotten the nature of these kind of episodes of like, okay, well, they pretty decisively, eh, they, they pretty heavily suggest it might not just be a fragment of his psyche. um, Right. It is in fact, this kind of ethereal thing. Ian, what sort of thoughts do you have on this episode? What I liked was that Kevin finally became, Kevin has like two modes in the series up until this point, it's looking utterly confused. Like, you know, or, or like, just, what does it look like? I, I'm not as hot, you know, I'm not, I'm not Kevin Garvey's junior, but, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you're close. 
Don't don't say yourself okay. short. There. Okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe, but I I certainly don't have his apps. That is for that is for certain. So, um, who does uh, his, <laughs> his 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 other his other mood is just like rage. So he's either befuddled or he is just spilling over with with anger. And yeah, yeah, this yeah, episode yeah, yeah. still both in spades, but it also was him, um, moving beyond the kind of passivity where he's simply responding to what's given him. Um, because that, that is what really characterizes him. Um, his entire backstory, his, you know, presence, um, is uh, doing what it seems like this situation right here calls for, and then being resentful that that's what he had to do, and he has to live with it, and this is him acting decisively, seeking out this person, this person, this person, weighing answers and then saying, okay, I'm going to do this. Not simply like, well, this is the next thing that has come down the conveyor belt for me to do. So I, I found it a deepening of his character and I appreciate that. When I love to that point, and maybe this is what you're alluding to, I find the scene when she shows up in the trailer, highly gripping. I mean, that mm-hmm. is, yeah. Um, you know, when, when it's this psychological gamesmanship between the two of them, you know, yeah. He says, do you want me to do this or not? Take this poison that will kill him because, you know, watch the episode. Um, do you want me to do yeah. this or not? And she says, well, of course I want you to, Kevin. No, she does. I don't think she says Kevin. But uh, she says, of she course says, oh, I want I you to. Oh, I absolutely <laughs> want you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in, in presumably her mind, in whatever form that is, is is trying to reverse psychology him right but we know and he references the first episode of this season and he says my dad said the voices had stopped because he finally did what they told him to do goodbye patty that's just a really Mm. potent scene yeah yeah yeah. it's great well and and one of the on the uh, uh, yes nathan's gonna tease me again about it the fact that i've rewatched the whole show again but of the entire series this is one of the most there's one episode later in season two that rivals it that we'll get to probably next week. But of the entire series, this might be one of the most galvanizing cliffhangers of the entire run of the show is just like he drinks the poison and then the man who's supposed to help him empties out the syringe that's supposed to bring him back and then shoots himself in the head. And then you see Michael walk in and like drag Kevin's body off presumably to you know bury it somewhere and uh, just that that's that's just an incredibly electric narrative beat to end us on like you want to talk about it like a propulsion yeah. into the next part of your story like where do you go from there it's it's absolutely galvanizing um, yeah so yeah i i absolutely love that i didn't i don't want us to leave this episode without talking about i absolutely love the way they integrate um lori into this episode um i didn't like laurie very much in the first season not that i actively disliked her but just you know she's 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 a bit uh her choices make you sort of uh not really endeared very much to the character uh through the course of the first season um but i just really love her desperation when she comes to try to find tommy uh, leading right up to her having this very sincere sort of I used to be your wife uh, moment with Kevin. Like, I do really love, it's obviously very sad to think about relationships ending. But I love it when stories 
are able to present, hey, we used to be in in deeply intimate relationship, and there's a familiarity that I can bring to this conversation that allows for us to to maintain some of that you know familiarity and and provide some peace, some comfort, uh, all of that. And so I just I really appreciate when shows like that, uh, shows like this, uh, bring that to the forefront, like in that scene with, with Lori and Kevin. So I just really love the way she's brought into, Oh, and her ultimate reunion with, uh, actually, Jill. is that this episode? <laughs> this no. is what happens, Reed. This is what happens. No, when I don't think watch ahead. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, so I'll take the divot on that one. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I'm not positive what you're talking about there. So that's episode seven. Are we good to move into episode eight international assassin? Are you good, Ian, to move on? I just want to add, just I and I will be super brief. Sure. The reunion with Lori, what I thought was how Kevin can have kind of multiple patties in a way mm. in his life. Mm. And, and I'm not trying to utterly demonize Lori, but there's an irony to when Lori is trying to persuade you. Like, no, no, this is all just mumbo jumbo. You know, I mean, hey, take it from me. I was part of a cult. Right, but leaves right. out, hey, I've been deprogramming those cult members with complete BS. So right. the, mm-hmm. uh, the unspoken part is that Kevin can't know is, why should I believe you, given that you are not above abducting people out of one heinous lie via another lie? You know, mm-hmm. so, so that's mm-hmm. what I mean. Like, he, Kevin can't know that. And so there's the dramatic irony of, we do, and... um I, I found that an interesting dynamic in the midst of him trying to figure out what the heck do I do now? Right. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. And that's a, that's a powerful scene in the hotel, but yes, the, the, the lingering effect of Lori's choices with Tommy continue right. to kind of surface. Um, so international assassin uh, listeners, when we pitched to Ian coming on to talk about leftovers, Basically, we said, okay, well, we want it a little late in the run, um, not too soon, not, you know, too late in the third season or anything, and and intentionally sort of steered you towards what, at the time, we referred to as one of the boldest episodes of the series. You know, <laughs> I've made a lot of bold proclamations about the show that are not really coming to pass with people, but... Um, <laughs> Still not sure what you're talking about there. <laughs> nonetheless, uh, at least within the context of the show, it's a bold episode um yeah, yeah and so you know would love to unpack this so so narratively speaking uh as reed just mentioned at the end of seven uh kevin drinks this poison and is literally dragged off screen uh presumably to a death um episode eight is m- uh pretty much entirely right except the very end the literal very end when yeah he the literal last back, five seconds right um, right right yeah. is is entirely in this kind of liminal limbo type space um, specifically represented in the form of a hotel uh, and some interesting conventions that present themselves at this hotel, not to be confused with a convention at a hotel, which is something totally different. Um, (laughs) uh, So yeah, Ian, what were some just sort of general takeaways of international assassin? And I guess a good question is, would you have chosen that outfit? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I, I ultimately would have, I would have looked at the stolen like, 
But yeah. uh, then I would have said, uh, I, I haven't, I haven't taken orders for ordination. I can't, I can't do that. So yes, I would have yeah. gone for the. I would have been bulging out. I wouldn't have worn it as well. But yes, I would take that suit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do love, and I mean the especially with all the themes that we keep bringing up every time we talk uh, in these series, in this hashtag in the morning series, uh, the placard on the wall: know first yeah. who you are, and then adorn yourself accordingly. I just, mm-hmm. oh man, it's wonderful. And, and, it's it's uh, so. Weird. And I, what I thought seeing that was like I loved it, and what I thought is, yeah, but we don't do that, um, right? We we right. we we just take that's what we take. Um, mm-hmm. It's, I don't think that it's a hard determinism. And, and this is one of the, I think, sinews that connects to Dark City. Um, so I'll save it for Dark City. Please just <laughs> Okay. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, well, but Nate- you, am, am I wrong? Your, your comment, uh, Ian, like the placard speaks, uh, highly, but we never actually do that. Is that, that's kind of what Neil alludes to later in the episode, right? Like, oh, assassin. Yeah. That's cool. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, something, something along those lines. I mean, I'm clearly paraphrasing, but uh, I, I, um, I left my notebook with my <laughs> internet, uh, uh, international assassin notes downstairs. So I'm oh, just okay. going off memory right now. No, you're just free, so, freewheeling. Got it. Just freewheeling. <laughs> yep. Thanks for showing up. I, d- prepared. I just, I just <laughs> grabbed me. the suit out of the closet and I went for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Reed, what, what are some notes about international assassin for you? So, uh, I'm, I'm going to hit like two or three things in literal like five second notes, just sort of acknowledging them. I was like, of course, well, hello again, Gladys. Haven't seen Gladys since she took her exit in season one very brutally. Um, that scene with Kevin Sr. through this TV is just absolutely wild. Um, and, uh, it, you know, so out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, man. Uh, and then I wrote down, and here comes Holy Wayne. Kevin. oh god yeah uh, that was great and then i wrote down uh and here comes holy wayne again just sitting on a toilet like that's 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 where they always keep keep winding up he's he's got those big eyes (laughs) destiny calls man you know need a hug (laughs) it's so funny like his eyes look and i'm not making the joke to the to the 80s song but his eyes look like hungry like he looks like he is about to (laughs) Open his mouth wide Hungry and just chomp your head off. Yeah, that's. Like, oh, thank you for taking that baton. And <laughs> I need you to sing. I love that song. That's a great song. Yeah, I mean, that's a great song. <laughs> Nothing about what you just did suggests that you what hate it. See, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are we even doing here? You know. So, um, so I, uh, the, oh, Reed, you have possibly, something to say. <laughs> but poss- possibly to pivot us into something a little bit. So those were just the cursory notes. Sure. Possibly to pivot us into something far more substantial, obviously, is the interaction between Patty and Kevin. Because the story has set up. I love that, that stuff. Oh, it's wonderful. The story has set up that they are here to do battle. So Kevin, our presumed hero, is here to do battle with a most powerful adversary. And this episode, in my opinion, delivers to almost the full extent of that promise of the promise of like, Hey, Kevin and Patty are going to get together and they're going to do battle. And, and the battle is, yeah, not, not just in the physical, but also, you know, sparring with ideas and sparring with concepts and uh, sparring with emotions because you have him 
viewing her at, this is just the y'all are going to have to jump in at a certain point. Cause I'm just going to go on this one that it's him sparring with her persona, the, the, uh, politician persona, right, the, the decoy. The, yes. The decoy, which has so much rich metaphor to just, this is the face she puts forward. Again, this is all in a presumed version of the afterlife, but this is the face she puts forward. Then you get the sort of, deeper uh, inner self, this small child who is still fully cognizant and aware of everything that they presumably are responsible for and are answering for, but is still a child. And then after, you know, what happens with that, which I'll get back to in a second, you get the other Patty who seems like the most real and and all all of the facade stripped away. And this is her. This is this is the first time we see Patty as a human being. We saw her mm-hmm. as head of the GR. Mm-hmm. We see her as extension or ghostly presence connected to, you know, stuck to Kevin. And now, for a few minutes down at the bottom of a well, bloodied and weary and scared, we finally see Patty as a human being. And it's it's profoundly it's, powerful storytelling. I just I, it, I love every bit of that. Well, and especially and so- you're making oh, a go- no, no, don't do it, Ian. I, me first. Um, <laughs> um, uh, what registered for me when you were talking about the the sort of multifaceted presentation there is the placard. It's know first who you are and then adorn yourself accordingly. Ian, you just said we don't do that. Like the iterations of Patty you're seeing in the hotel. I mean, I love just that turn. I I would say. The convention of this episode was its most wild the first time watching it. Um, in other words, comprehending the show um, now, it it had it, the effect was a little minimized. However, buried in there is this, as you just attempted to describe, Reed, this fascinating undercurrent about who we are, who we present as, and and what is at the bottom of all of our wells in a certain manner of speaking. And I just found that a really, really powerful uh, uh, thread to follow. Ian, please. I was, like, really punched in the gut by this episode. And I don't think that what it emotionally achieves is possible without the just absolutely 180-degree detour into an utterly different genre than the show has been yeah. um, prior to this. Right, right. And um, I think that bold and brave is, like, so overused. I, I, I think that anytime someone does anything, it's so bold. But I think that it is to entirely, entirely stop in place and 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 show up over there on that horizon as something completely different. Um, because I, I don't think that we can have that unraveling of the different layers of who Patty is w- without this episode that unambiguously moves into the supernatural and the, and the, um, there are intimations of such things in the series prior to this moment. But here is where we, we emerge out of the womb of the tub and we are simply in it. And there is not a, did that happen? Did that not happen? Um, this is exactly what's happening. A person can simultaneously be the woman in her fifties in a, in a suit in this room. And she's also the little girl 
across yeah. the hall down here. And whatever, whatever like hangups I do have about some of the storytelling devices that Lindelof at times uses, I think that the only way this works is to just go for broke <laughs> and, and has your character named Virgil be like Virgil in, uh, the Inferno and he is your guide to the underworld. I mean, right. just, just own that and run with it. Yeah. And I, I, I was absolutely floored by what this episode did. Long, lingering scenes with, I mean, one of the, one of the most like hard in my throat things is girl Patty sitting on the well and saying, like, Oh, would it, would it make it easier if, you know, like I, would I it talk help too if much I say and, I deserve it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and just having a full grown man just sit there and, this episode furthers again, like, there's like a hundred expressions on Kevin's face, just like that. Yeah. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. 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 Well, and then she goes, like I said, you know, she, it's so rich as a scripting moment and as, as a performed moment because she is a child and the, and the way she expresses self-deprecating language. So yeah. it is, it is not simply a child being childish. Right. It is yeah. it is yeah. a very wounded and prolonged uh personality confined yeah. in right. the body of a child. As as you know, yeah, I yeah. talk too much, I'm stupid, I'm and and th- this this is language that the the show uses, you know. I talk too much, I'm stupid, and then she says I'm a fat pig, you know, which this is these are these are things that clearly the abusive relationship she had with Neil, these are things she heard and things she yeah. she ab- absorbed and adopted about herself. And I love... Adorned herself with. Yes, yes. And now she has clothed herself in that persona. But I love so much Kevin's honesty when he says, it's hard. And she says, why? He says, because I feel sorry for you. Yeah, yeah. You know, and... and and then uh, there's two things before we possibly sort of wind down the whole caboodle for myself that I did not want to leave this without without identifying because I think it's so crucial. So in her persona as politician, she says something, and I, it, this is going to come up again when we get into our main film conversation about Dark City. So I'm not going to linger on her along here, but she says the phrase, and I can't imagine this is anything but entirely deliberate. She says, our cave has collapsed. Well... First of all, there's an allusion back to the very, very beginning of season two where the the cave woman's cave like, you know, has collapsed and fallen, fallen in. That was the the apocalypse in that story. But then also there is this uh, because she's talking about ideas and she's talking about how people need to, you know, press forward into ideas more for survival. That child's going to be okay because he will have trouble giving and receiving love. And it reminds me, and the reason this was on my mind is because, again, this will come up in Dark City uh, about the the allegory of the cave, the Plato's old allegory of the cave and uh, people who are stuck there and the, the way that the cave represents uh, ele- elevations in perception and elevations in understanding and recognition. So we'll get back to that when we get back into Dark City. But the other and last thing that I wanted to make sure I mentioned I had said that when Patty is at the bottom of the well, beaten and bloody, we see her at her most human. And I think the moment, probably the first moment in the show, that the show showed us Patty Levin, who Patty Levin really was and what she was about. And danged if it wasn't like the best 
recognition of why the GR is the entity that it is, the guilty remnant, is she talks about that Jeopardy contestant who would not speak to her. And then when he would yeah. not speak to her, she says, there's a power in that. And here I saw, right. the, we're talking about characters, but here I saw a woman who had spent so painfully much of her life feeling powerless and helpless. And the way she saw in light of Apocalypse to reclaim power was to go right. back to this experience in Jeopardy. And she wasn't the only one. She didn't start the Guilty Remnant, but that's what that's what then suddenly it's like there's a power in I will say nothing. I will speak yeah, yeah. nothing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so much I, going on in this episode. I, I just, I, I would feel remiss if I didn't bring this up um, and, I, and I will be brief. The, the pretext for this episode is that Kevin and Patty are going to do battle, right? And mm. what's interesting is that doing battle is essentially Kevin kind of like psychoanalytically drawing out because he, he breaks all three rules that Gladys gives him for meeting with Patty. You know, um, mm-hmm. don't mention Neil. Um, I don't have my notes. I forget what the other two are, but I know that he, he yeah. pushes back on every single one of them. Um, mm-hmm. she, she asks, I, I remember she asks him, um, what is it, you know, what am I about? You know, she asks, like, why did you, why did you make that donation? Which is the same amount that she needed to, she had mm-hmm. said that she needed to get out of, her relationship with Neil. Um, uh, what am I about, Kevin? And he says, uh, breaking up families or destroying families, right? Yeah. He completely unmasks the, you know, safe, the, the, the electable face of Patty and says, well, this is what you're about. And she says, that's brilliant. She says, yes. like, that's it. You nailed it. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. So I find it interesting that doing battle means telling her the truth. Like so you, you present this persona, but here's the truth of why you do this. And and right, I find that really, um, really moving as a redefinition of what doing battle is. So I just, I just have to admit that I'm disappointed in a way that at the end he still has to kill her though. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that makes it more heartbreaking, but it just feels so like oh all that for them if you're still just gonna push your face down into the water to drown her you know you've come all this way in uncovering who patty is and you've brought that into the light even for herself to see and now you see it and you can relate to her as a human being and you still can't get out until you kill her and um just sucks yeah Hmm. yeah but I think that's well, part until, of it. The- I'm sorry. To no, 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 no. Un- you go ahead. Until it's funny until you got to that sad statement there. I, I was going to add to your note, Ian, about the the notion of him unmasking intent and or truth telling, speaking her speak, you know, declaring this is who you are. OK, adorn yourself accordingly. I'm going to tell you what you're wearing. You are wearing the garb of one who breaks families. Yep. Juxtapose that with the beautiful i mean i i am prone to some emotionality of course but the 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 level of zero to 60 arresting emotional pang i felt when that little girl sitting on that well side says would it help if i say i deserve it and he says that's not true and what a what an amazing truth to speak to someone right like and, and so i guess i guess i want to say 
I know what you're after with your dis- disheartenment at the well scene. I can view it yeah. as a little more metaphorical because because he's kind of tying the knot off there for that character. It feels like. Yeah. And I actually even and I, I, I at that point, I think I always viewed that moment more as, you know, uh, putting a wounded animal out of its misery. Then, then I did, you know, like at that point, like, so he pushed her down the well. That happened. That's him. He did that. Um, but then, like, the moment when he falls back down the well after and drowns her after that, I didn't view that moment as so much him completing his mission as I did that. Something has pivoted over to where now he is just sort of, there is, as odd as it sounds, there is a bit of a mercy in what he does at that end. He, he drowns her, and it's a brutal, brutal uh, visualization. But you can, you can see in her face, like, she doesn't, she doesn't want to get out of that well. Like, she's, she's done, you know? That's, that's, that's what I want to think, too. Sure. I just sure. have the leftover, I have the residue that I can't shake that I'm telling myself that because I want to feel better about it. No, I can understand that, and I think that's a fair that's a fair sort of uh, you know pushback to against that. But I think, regardless, uh, hard to deny just an absolutely galvanizing yeah. episode and a, a amazing, very very powerful story with a lot to chew on. Uh, Nathan, did you have anything else you wanted to add? I don't. No, take us out, Riri. Ian, you good? Okay. All right. <clears throat> Well, ladies and gentlemen, that has been yet another episode of Hashtag TV Guideposts, where we have spent some time, just a bit, in Jarden, Texas, but then also spent some time in some version of an afterlife where, unfortunately, all three of us have drunk the water, so uh, no. we, uh, we will uh, hopefully be be seeing you guys next, to, next time when... Uh, very, very importantly, we are only covering one episode uh, next week. We'll talk to you about that in a little bit. But join us next time uh, for hashtag TV Guideposts. Because let's face it, it would help if you realized you deserved this. So, yes, there's that. TV so uh, now that TV Guideposts is uh, wonderfully concluded as of this episode, we're going to move into a film that I was really excited to cover and and am really anxious for us to get to, particularly for its implications in this phase that we're that we're in. But is not traditionally horror. Um, Alex Proyas, the director of our film Dark City, in case you missed the title of the episode you're listening to, um, Alex Proyas <laughs> has said very deliberately that uh, there is some intentional horror that is laced into this narrative and into this aesthetic. Um, so, you know, it it, uh, it did have at least that version of uh, intention to it, even though it's primarily viewed as a science fiction film um, and certainly not, you know, horror in the traditional sense. But Nathan, correct me if I'm wrong. Was this your very first time seeing it? Yes. Okay. And Ian, this was your second, or was it your all? It, this was your second time seeing it, right? Uh, I've seen it probably like three times prior, but they were always a theatrical. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, so what we did there was a little bit, little peek behind the curtain, listeners, is that we had originally intended going into this episode to cover the director's cut on this film because there is a director's cut and it's pretty strong. Um, 
there was some confusion among the three of us about the accessibility and availability of the director's cut versus the theatrical cut. So here's where we stand. Um, Ian has seen the director's cut, uh, <laughs> as have I. <laughs> Nathan oh, has boy. only seen the theatrical cut. <laughs> See you guys. <laughs> so, I'm but, the, but the good news is that uh, with the exception of just a couple of small uh, aesthetic notes and about probably a dozen or more mildly extended scenes the fundamental story is the same it ends the same this is not a descent moment this is the, you know the, the, the <laughs> movie you saw really only has about 10 minutes difference from the movie we saw and uh and really i would ian correct me if i'm wrong on this or if you feel differently about it i would say probably the biggest most profound difference between the director's cut and the theatrical cut Two differences I would cite. Number one is I think he holds back the mystery of what's really going on for much later in the film in the director's cut. Like you spend a good 45 minutes to an hour before they spell out this is the premise you're stepping into. Whereas in the theatrical cut, Kiefer straight up like says it at the beginning. (laughs) Like, hey, this is what's happening. Um, the, uh, The second thing that I would say is different is there is obviously with like some nice additional dialogue, uh, a line here, a line there, just some added substance to the character interactions and some added substance to the just the general world building. But it's not a fundamentally different story. Like if if you're listening yeah. to this and you've only seen the theatrical cut, you are or not going to be lost. if you're present for this conversation. Right. And you've only seen the theatrical cut, you're not <laughs> going to be utterly lost in, in, in what's going on. Um, right. So that having been said, um, you know, I, I obviously have a bunch of trivial bits. And then so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to blast through, if it's OK, a few trivia bits. I'll see if either of you have some that you want to add to it. And then we'll get into the the meat and potatoes of this uh, this wild cityscape. Um, yeah. So the film often gets compared to The Matrix, even though The Matrix was one year later. The reason I think that's ironic is because that a number of the set pieces, included the ones used for the famous rooftop chase scene, uh, were sold to the Matrix at the end of shooting. And so there was actually a lot of of set pieces that were reused for the Matrix uh, from Dark City. I love that the uh, there are a lot of deliberate anachronisms in the film that are meant intentionally to sort of disrupt the viewer's sense of what time and place we're in. Um, I loved this story that uh, Alex Proyas actually got the idea for Dark City while watching the crew from The Crow, which was the, his previous film to this, uh, watching the crew from The Crow move set pieces around. And he saw them sort of recalibrate the set, and it made him you know, sort of envision this story, this Dark City story. A bit of a poignant note on it is that he said uh, it said that he would frequently discuss the concept of Dark City with Brandon Lee, the star of The Crow. And it is presumed, oh. heavily presumed, that if Brandon Lee hadn't had the fatal accident that he'd had on the set of The Crow, it is entirely possible he might have been the star of Dark City because Proyas was talking to him frequently kind of as he was developing um, the idea. I have just a couple more, but I want to see uh, uh, Ian or Nathan, did either of you stumble upon anything interesting as you were exploring these little trivial bits? Ian? Nope. Uh, no, I, I didn't. No. Nope. Okay. All nope. right. I'll just share a couple more brief things then. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, some recent fog trivia, uh, Nathan, I don't know if you'll know, but, uh, Rufus Sewell, 
uh-huh. star of this star of this film. Yep. Played Fortinbras. I in. know that. I know that. Well, it's right there. Because well, that's the- not like that's not trivial bit. That's like fog <laughs> fog bit. Foggy well, bit. that's what I'm saying. I said it's a recent bit of fog, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it's right here. Not- Jack Bauer, Fortinbra, and Thunderbolt Ross walk into a room. Nice. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. I get that. I can live with that. Um, the last thing I want to mention is that um, the uh, uh, Roger Ebert was uh, an obsessed fan of this film. More than just a fan, he was a champion of it. He uh, he actually held some lectures and in college courses on just this film where he would go like shot by shot and kind of analyze it for people. Wow. He cited it as the best film of 1998 and he even loved it so much. He requested if he could record a commentary for the Blu-ray. And, uh, and so like, that's how much, I mean, he was just absolutely I, galvanized and inspired by this film. Wow. <laughs> I, I had no idea that, <laughs> that Roger Ebert stand so hard. For Dark City, that's <laughs> he did, man. Like he, wow. he loved this film. He probably would have cited it as one of his favorites. Uh, period. But yeah, he was he was very much a, a fan and proponent of the film. Um, so uh, cutting away out of trivial bits into it, I'm gonna uh, Ian. I'm gonna go to you first. Like, so what's your general take on this film? How, what's your what's your general bleed it into some likes dislikes if you want to? But what's your history experience uh, feelings about this film in general? Okay. So I first saw this uh, the year it was released, um, mm. and and it was because I saw a trailer and I was intrigued because I could just tell from the the aesthetic from the sets. I was like, oh man, this looks like a marriage of Metropolis and the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So I'm like, I'm yeah. in, I'm in. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. Which also meant I was the only kid in class who wanted to see that on that basis. So. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I, I instantly, it's Dark City is one of the movies that I like for the look of the world it inhabits more than I actually like it for like the characters and what happens to them. And it's not that I don't sure. like them. It's, it's that, you know, Weimar Republic, you know, like German expressionist waking nightmare kind of feel to the city. Yes. It was very reminiscent to me of, nightmares that I would wake from where I'm just walking through a city at night and I just know that someone's following me. Um, I can never make out who it is. I hear the footsteps (laughs) periodically, but I know someone's back there. I I like Um, the dramatic interpretation there. (laughs) 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 Like I'm not going to do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, uh, all these years I've seen it. Yeah. Probably three or four times the theatrical cut. And uh, after all that, I still don't have a toaster. So. <laughs> okay. Wow. wow. Um, so Nathan, what about what about for you? What you the first time viewing? What you? I mean, what do you think? Did you know anything about what to expect going into it? Um. No. Uh no. I di- I really didn't know what to expect. Honestly, I am. I am working hard to not just like skip to the end here. Um, you can skip to the end if you need to skip to the end. No, You're fine. I mean, not, not without, not without you boys. Um, so no, I didn't, I didn't know anything about the film. I had seen the cover art. I knew the name. Honestly, I think I thought I was getting some sort of pulp superhero kind of story. And I don't know why I thought that other than just, you know, subconscious memory of it 
its release and the the imagery or something. So so I was a little thrown. Uh, my I mean, if if I'm perfectly frank here, my first note is ha ha Kiefer sucks. <laughs> His performance was so bad to me in this movie. <laughs> And I don't mind Keeper Sutherland. He makes a hell of a Jack Bauer, but I was like, wow, this is, this is so performative and not like, you know, fun to watch him do this. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I found it ultimately, um, this is one of those difficult films where so much has built on it in the ensuing 20 plus years that I have seen that kind of is more up to date in terms of just visual and production design. So, so, so there was a degree to which it's datedness hurt my experience a little bit. Mm. Okay. Um, okay. And maybe, maybe you're alluding to this as far as the director's cut and what it does or doesn't do compared to the theatrical. Once it kind of clicked with me, what was going on, it lost a lot of the energy for me. Ah, okay. Sure. In sure. other words, the whatever the creature people are called, the the alien things. Um yeah, just called strangers. strangers. Uh yep. once I, I don't know, they they were very menacing and sort of actually kind of creepy slash scary for about a third of the film. And then a, a turn kind of happens. I don't even totally remember what it is, where I think maybe it's once you see them in mass. Um, I don't know, something about as this as the film actually progresses, they lost a lot of their menace to me. Mm, okay. Um so a- anyway, I don't I don't know exactly where else you are looking for there other than um I will say this. I I finished it and was was pretty like, ah, yeah. I don't know about theme. I'm gonna let Reed run with the ball on this one. <laughs> um and since two nights ago when I watched it, uh, I, I am, I am not at that place anymore. Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think too, it's the, so to pivot my own experience, um, when I saw it, which was proximal to its release, but I didn't see it in the theater. Um, when I first saw it, I actually went in knowing that Roger Ebert loved it. Like, I think it actually might have first hit my radar because he called it the best film of 1998. And so I was like, I was he like, put oh, I finger in your face while he did it. He did it. Two best ever. Okay. Okay, Roger. Put I told you mask, about this. Roger. Okay. I'm going to have to move if you keep coming to my house and pointing at me every wow. single time. Wow. Um, so, but, uh, but when I saw it, knowing that he like loved it, I remember when I saw it, I was like, well, that was cool. I mean, like, yeah, was, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it kind of looked cool and it was whatever. And this is a film that the further I have uh, gotten from it and the more times I have seen it has just continued to exponentially compound my appreciation and affection for it. And um, I, I'm going to cut you off real quick. I should have sure. tagged that in there, like, because that's circling the swirl of stuff, the soup that's in my mind that the strangers are pouring in nightly um, <laughs> is I, I think there's a world where another viewing may uh, enhance my affection for it. I was just so trying to tune in, no pun intended to kind of sure. what was going <laughs> on there, there. One of the few unfortunate things about the way we cover stuff sometimes is you can almost overthink the watch. 
you know, overthink the viewing. Uh, yeah, uh, I get it. And, oh, and, yeah. and kind of fall off the ledge on either side. Either you overthink it and it's it's just not really entertainment anymore, which you kind of want it to be on one level, or I'm just trying to be entertained and not thinking too Anyway, so all that to say, I think a subsequent viewing may prove more fruitful. Yeah, I'm going to pivot over to Ian in a second, but I want to comment about that, which I actually think is 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 quite true, given that like this show in general has changed in many ways the way I watch certain movies. And um, I already was one to latch on to metaphors and to think about deeper themes and things like that. But just three years uh, plus of, of, of having these conversations, uh, you know, coming coming up like a hurricane, I think, on on four years, which is crazy to me. Um, and so, like, things that uh, I now do, it is, it is an intentional act now to see it as a film first and then to unpack the things that it's scratching at unless they just leap out to me. Um, and I think there's a lot of... I used to have to do it in reverse where I had to kind of push for some of the deeper themes. And now I feel like it's uh, it, it, it's like... I almost have to take a pause and say like, okay, I'm just going to watch this and just enjoy it and just see what it has to give me and see what, you know, sort of connects uh, for me. But, um, but Ian, you've seen it a few times. So, you know, is this one for you that, that sort of sticks in your imagination and fires off a bunch of things? Or is this more just, you know, uh, sort of in the cursory sci-fi uh, aesthetically pleasing kind of thing? Where, do, where does it sit for you? It's, it's the, um, it's the setting that stays with me. This this is a movie that, as much as this might sound like anhedonia and like depressive, like unplugging from life, this is a movie that sometimes I would turn on at night, like to fall asleep to. Uh, so I've watched it all the way through X number of times. But it and Blur Witch Project, for some reason, were movies that I would. Wow. <laughs> this is uh, I'm getting psychoanalyzed <laughs> wow. now. Uh, Kevin Garvey is with me. Um, telling me how messed up that is. Um, but just, just for <laughs> like the atmosphere of both, um, because I, I have, I know we'll get to like, what is this about? And I have a couple like complaints about it, but the overall, the aesthetic of Dark City really sticks in my craw and I really yeah. enjoy it. Sure, sure. I understand. No, and and that makes sense. I think it is a film as much how it's about what it's about um, as it is it's actually what it's trying to say. I think, I, you know, the aesthetics are a blend of this, like, neo-noir. You mentioned German expressionism, mm-hmm. you know, like Caligari and Metropolis and stuff. It's also got some flavors of Twilight Zone thrown in there. Like, it's, it's definitely, it's this blending of some very deliberate influences where the the look and feel of the film is as right. crucial and i would even ag- agree I, I forget i think you said the scene but it might have even been you uh nathan describing your experience i think it was ian about how like that even more so than the characters or even more so than just exactly what they um you know the narrative beats itself even you know all of that uh the aesthetic is the overriding principle uh to all of that yeah um uh, this is a film that if somebody were to yeah. say, uh, yeah, really interesting idea, but the idea is all it's got going for it because its characters are not like I've finished this film all these X amount of times and I still don't know who John Murdoch is. 
Like I, like I still don't know. <laughs> even going into this conversation, I don't even know that who John Murdoch is is even part of the point. <laughs> you know, um, right. I think it's a yeah, film yeah. about those ideas and uh, and about you know what it's what it's trying to say. Um, so I actually. I don't know, Ian, if you would if you would agree with this, but I'm actually really interested to get into the the meat of of what we have to say. So I'm, you know, I don't have a ton of cursory things in either likes, dislikes, or scares. I love the aesthetic, of course. I love the aesthetic. Um, I'm a big Jennifer Connelly fan. Uh, she pulls off a bit of a Jessica Rabbit vibe whenever she's singing the in those you know nightclub scenes. Um, and then you know, of course, I just. <laughs> I think it's really hysterical that Kiefer is playing so against type. Like he's the anti Jack Bauer. He's such a vulnerable waifish character in this. Um, <laughs> so, and I, and my last little cursory note is I just I have a huge soft spot uh, for William Hurt. I love William Hurt as an actor. Like I just think he brings such a distinct and deliberate yeah. uh, voice to everything. So I, I really I really love William Hurt. But honestly, I'm uh, oh, yeah. itching to get to the to the theme. So I'll invite you guys to do cursory stuff as well and then go from there. I'll throw a few cursory things here. Uh, one, you know, all of us talking about our Caligaris and our, you know, German <laughs> expressionism. I'm like, does Scott Derrickson use this as conceptual inspiration for Doctor Strange? Because, I don't know, it just kind of registered <laughs> for me. Wouldn't surprise there. me. <laughs> Actually, I wrote down, it's the Truman Show meets the Matrix meets Brazil. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, it's it's not untrue. <laughs> no, pretty accurate, actually. Um, the only real scare we're throwing out here—I mean, you know—the the strangers are inherently creepy in their design, but the only one that really, really said a lot to me was the nasty psychic spider thing coming out of that guy's brain when yeah, the giant billboard lady judo chops his scalp off come on man yeah, that ain't right that's the only thing that's the only thing i wrote down i said that ain't right man that tendril thing coming out of <laughs> his head is disgusting and she's like judo oh my gosh uh, um ian what kind of cursory stuff do you have well okay um so i immediately picked up there was so much like precursor echoes to Matrix um, yes. in this. Just, I mean, just um, rotten with it, you know. Like, um, <laughs> I, I wrote Doctor Kiefer is Morpheus before I remembered that he's Doctor Schreiber. Um, <laughs> even in a phone booth, no less. But like, they are coming for you right now. You have to go out the window. Like, um, but uh, building from there, I added Schreiber. Is German for like scribe or writer, and it's interesting that oh, the yeah. stranger that he answers to most is Mister Book, hmm. and uh, it, that seemed a lot more like eventful <laughs> when I when I wrote it last night. And I was kind of <laughs> like, "Oh yeah, that's that's a thing." Um, <laughs> but more importantly, two two absolutely legendary actors are both strangers. Riff Raff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, is, is our, oh my gosh, who, who is the, <laughs> wow, I'm brain farting so he's hard either with Mr. the Matrix. Han- I think he's Mr. Hand. He's Mr. Yeah, he's Hand, Mr. Hand. And I, but I was going to say that he's our Agent Smith, uh, from the Matrix mm. in oh, Dark okay. City. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, <laughs> so it's not just like the Matrix borrows this. <laughs> the entire Matrix trilogy is like, I really like Dark City. <laughs> Did, did you hear how Roger <laughs> loves that movie? <laughs> like, we should make three movies derived from it. Certainly, this um, will get Ebert's attention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what if we give him three of them? Um, 
So yeah, Riff Raff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show is in it. And just as importantly, Mr. Wall is the freaking gyro pilot from Mad Max 2, the Road Warrior, and the airplane pilot in Beyond Thunderdome. I rest my case. Boom. Mike Mike dropped. I have spoken. (laughs) Syringe dropped. We don't need another hero. (laughs) All we want is what's Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> Sleep now. <laughs> I would love to. lively there with the cheesy 80s. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my gosh. Um oh. so so yeah, so we I We shouldn't uh, be allowed to do this. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm not sure so yeah, we can. So, uh, so I, you know, I obviously had some notes. I'm sure Ian probably has some notes, but but you you've uh you, you've sparked my imagination uh, here, Mr. Rouse. So I, uh, 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 normally, Ian, this is the point at which I yield to our guest and allow them to unpack theme first. You are no longer guest. You are family. So you sit there and wait your freaking turn. Okay. That's, that's how this is. I'm, <laughs> hey, that's, that's, remember, <laughs> Infinity War already hey, happened. I know how this works. leftovers <laughs> or else. Listen. Whoa, whoa. Hey, Nebula. Okay, right, just... Nebula. Just <laughs> stay, <laughs> stay in the back. <laughs> and, wow. and, <laughs> and by the so, way, your grandpa is Palpatine. I'm sure. So uh, never forget. Never forget. So, but <laughs> uh, but Nathan, no. In, in all in all seriousness, go ahead. Uh, go ahead and, and and let us know what. Hits um. You. So, yeah, my first. What, or I'm sorry, the only viewing I've had. It, it finished, and I was like, ah, that was Dark City. Uh, not. <laughs> Sure, I knew that's what I was getting. That's okay, you know, but there it was. Um, and the more I've tried to wrestle down, okay, come up with something, Rouse. Come on, Rouse, you you got this. <laughs> um, so it hasn't really been said, but at least not with any real, um, you know, I don't know, specificity is the wrong word, but the the plot of the film is. Mm evil you know cabal of of subterranean army of alien creature people things have just engineered the ostensibly what we would call a city but as has been alluded to continues to uh uh change its landscape uh nightly uh there is never any light there's never any sunlight uh and the residents of this dark city are their, their memories, their experiences are swirled betwixt each other through various just sort of weird medical alien means. So, so, but the, but the takeaway ultimately is, you know, overlords dictating your reality in a nutshell. Right. And, and it's not just that. I mean, that, that's not a new concept. Um, sure. I, I mean, sure. even for 98, I'm sure that was not a new concept. This, your reality is, is engineered for you and not, and your perceptions are, are false. That's, that's not a new kind of idea. What, what really has sunk its alien spider tendrils into me is, is, is the title and the concept. Hmm. Um, is the dark city because, you know, I mean, clearly as we've joked, the, the sort of Rufus Sewell character 
is the Neo template, right? I mean, he's the, it's the savior sort of idea, uh, at work in this film. But, but again, I'm not, I'm less interested in the nuts and bolts and more interested in the conceit that we are oppressed in a dark space and only bringing light to that dark space will save us. Yeah. And the question, because I'm not going to do a great job of this in all of our episodes, but something Reed and I have stumbled into over the last month or so is the idea. And and thank you to Bill Obers Jr. for inadvertently inspiring this on the changeling when he posed a really fascinating question that in the moment, both Reed and I were like, huh, hmm, hadn't really given that one much thought, Um, but it propelled some really interesting conversation. And so, as I've begun since then watching things, if I hit a wall in terms of my understanding of the film or, or where I, where I'd want to go next conversationally, it's to kind of pose a question. And, and the question that has kept coming to me since watching this is, is how, how do we in the real, in the present, in a way in which our perceptions are true carry the light right yeah right it is not because if you read one headline you've read about a million of them right now and because they are all echoes of each other and that is that we live in a very dark city Mm. Mm. and and i'm not going to just foist all of this off to other people as culpable or other entities or enterprises as culpable, but there is a whole mechanism and it's not, you can't distill it to, Oh, it's fake news or it's a mainstream media. It's, it's nothing that simple, mm-hmm. but there is a truth too. the air is a swirl with confusion and an ill intent and havoc and anger Hmm. and you know i don't want to be one of these characters that is that are so easy to be put to sleep yeah right but i keep uh these days and i'm so terrible at it i'm confessing to you my brothers in this conversation i'm confessing to these listeners i'm so terrible at it but i am Eminently and only interested these days in what is practical, not at the expense of what is immaterial in a, in a faith sense, but what is, what is practical to the carrying of light in dark spaces. I'm not interested in conversations about it'll be better after X. I'm not interested in conversations Mm -hmm. of, well, this, this world isn't our home anyway. Um, I'm not interested in those conversations because I think they are wrongheaded at best and they are malicious and unchristlike at worst. Um, I will Mm -hmm. cite a recent back and forth I had with a peer that has burdened me in the, in the ponderings of this film and this conversation I had made some comment as we are wont to do on social media and thinking, okay, well, this is my good deed for the day. 
and it, did it have a bite of cynicism to it? Perhaps was it um, intending to critique and maybe criticize administration? Yes. And a peer came back and said, it is a sad world in which we live kind of, kind of throwing us all in the dark city. And, right. and I uh, claim as authorship here, the me inside me read our, our ongoing ourselves, know ourselves, the, the, right. the Christ right. image inside me authoring this response to that person that simply said, no, we live in a beautiful world. Mm-hmm. We, we can't seem to friggin' help ourselves to keep corrupting the hell out of it, though, or the hell into it, if you want to use that. Right, and so right. I guess I, 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 I posed a question that I haven't let be responded to, but I'm just, it, it feels like a case of, I, I believe that our calling is carrying the light. I am. I need help for my unbelief that some days the carrying alone is the end point. Right. If that makes any sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm rattling off here, but partly it's, I'm just really a swirl. And so again, I, I actually don't really like the movie a ton, but as I have pondered it, it uses so directly even in a way that something like the matrix, which clearly cribs from it three times over, uh, doesn't do a great job of, of this dark light, like the dark city. And that kept Mm. coming to me, this, this geographical space occupied by people that is overcast with illness and unwellness. The only way out of which is to somehow birth light into. And so I guess what I'm interested in beyond movies is our capacity and how we practically shepherd that into existence. So, um, my imagination is a blaze. Like, like your, your spirit has just like a, like a billboard off its hinges. has just like, (laughs) judo. (laughs) It's just judo chopped. My scalp right off and tendrils are just, you know, seeking to emerge. But this is the moment because I don't think I'll lose my thought. This is the moment that I'm going to yield to our guest uh, and see. Ian, uh, if you have anything that you want to read, you're like, (laughs) I am ablaze with holy fire. Ian, you go. (laughs) The reason I'm doing that, the reason I'm doing that is because, no, the reason I'm doing that is because I fear he won't get to talk once I I start. So, so Ian. Wow, <laughs> you're going to be the nebula before I before know. long. I can hear um, that. So, uh, Ian, uh, by all means, if you have anything ready, uh, I yield the floor to you, sir. I I'll have to I'll have to think about like how um, anything in Dark City can be threaded to you know practical concrete action that relays and instantiates truth. Here and now, on the on the ground of where we are, and um, that's because the main thing that I focus on with Dark City is how unsatisfactory the ending is, hmm. and I think that my drawing attention to it, I think that it connects well with Nathan's point that I think can't be repeated enough. 
the solution to um, the problem of our dark city is perhaps not foremost, but I'll just say, first of all, is that solutions don't cut it. We are in a mechanistic plausibility structure that wants to see the spreadsheet for everything. That wants to commodify things and then know, okay, so what is the, what is the price tag for this engineering solution to a human problem? And, and those are just two incommensurable fields. Um, there's, there's a reason that you don't have the IT person at your job sit beside you and psychoanalyze you. It's because there is nothing, there is nothing similar about the two realms. However yeah. much we want to use metaphors of our brains being computers, that's a crappy metaphor. <laughs> um, it reduces, it reduces the wonder of the human being. And, and, and it, it is a metaphor that has no connection to the concrete thing that you're actually talking about. So I'm frustrated by solution talk. And I'm frustrated further down that trail then with easy solutions. And I think that that's one of Nathan's most important points. It's not like, mm-hmm. well, come mm-hmm. November, then we can, then we'll be able to breathe. It's like, no, if, if you are that naive, right? then right. you, you are not doing justice to the depth of the problem with our world, which is a beautiful world. And also an incredibly dark and frightening and violent, um, world that, that, bites that that we arrogantly assume that we can conquer and claim for ourselves but this world bites back um Mm. it is not neutrally just there (laughs) there are um there are ways that it is opposed to us and it makes that violently known Mm. and um so my my connection to naive facile solutions is um, the the solution in Dark City is inadequate. Um, we get the, again, similar to Neo, the um, he's not a savior. He, he is a problem that the rulers knew would arise at some point, theoretically. Mm-hmm. And oh, shoot, there it is. Right. So right. how do we how do we exploit that? for our purposes. And, uh, in, in true Frankenstein fashion, it, it can't be controlled. And it does, uh, it does the Ultron thing. Now, now the difference with Dark City is we can give it a pass and say, oh, yay. Um, because, uh, John Murdoch becomes a, uh, benevolent tyrant, but that's all that he is. He's not a, he's not a savior. He's not, a messiah. He's another creature who can be, but is not inherently in alignment with truth. The only, mm. the only single monarchical leader who you can rely on to deliver you out of danger, distress, enslavement is a person who is truth. And that kind of power and that kind of leadership exercised by a single human being will at best look like John Murdoch. But what John Murdoch, yes, he angles the city to face 
this this star. And I'm not trying to say like that that's nothing. But he leaves the city's mechanics in place. Hmm. He leaves the he leaves every bit of illusion about it being a world. He he preserves the illusion of Shell Beach. He knows mm-hmm. damn well there's no Shell Beach except the one that he has artificially just created. And he lets Anna be Anna, who she's not. <laughs> who is she? Doesn't matter. But uh, there, there, and I'm not trying to utterly dash the sweetness of. I know the point that is trying to be made is a, 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 another precursor. You know, it's, it's so eternal sunshine and spotless mind at the end. And there is a sweetness to that and a truth to that that, regardless of, we are not only social construction all the way down. There is something about us that exceeds that. There's a surplus in us that is more than that. But John Murdoch goes, all right, job done. With, and he's only changed a couple formal features about the Dark City. And that is not adequate. Hmm. Um, that is That is not the deliverer that we need. Maybe Tina Turner's right and we don't need another hero. But we need something better than John Thunderdome. So, well, and I, okay, so, buckle up, everybody. Okay, oh, so, um, <laughs> okay, so, um, he doesn't flex often. So, 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 so first off, um, first off, I, I, I agree with what you've said about the world and life and truth, Ian. I don't know that I agree with it about Dark City and, Maybe this will make sense in a second. You you mentioned in there that he um, leaves the mechanics of Dark City intact, but he does one thing that, when Nathan asked his question, sent my mind to fire because he said um, Nathan's Nathan's question, sensitively and and heartfelt asked as it was, is how do we carry the light? And the very first thing. Mm-hmm that popped into my head is maybe we don't carry the light. Maybe we turn the world towards it because that is what John Mardock did. He, the, the, the only reason it was a dark city is because the light that was behind it, the, the, the interface that the strangers had used to point it towards was actively pointing it away from the light. And what John did in that is yes, he, he flooded the the upper half of the or lower half, if you will, of the um the hemisphere that they're in, and then sort of replicated Shell Beach, if you will, and then he just spun it and spun it towards now the entire world is turned upside down and is now facing the light. And yes, the 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 mechanisms uh, are still the same because one and we could get into the science fiction of well he can't you know implant them on a planet or maybe he's pointed them on a trajectory or whatever like they are for better or worse they are in space in this you know uh, circular city this flat earth if you will but he's turned that earth to face the sun and one thing that the film is very very interested in that I'm also incredibly interested in is the soul of memory because that's why the strangers are constantly changing everything is because they're trying to find in their feeble and on their path to extinction way they are trying to find how do we 
create individuality for our own survival. And they think the key is memory. And John Murdoch, in a slightly cheesy line, says to Mr. Hand right at the end, he is like, yeah, he said, but you were looking in the wrong place. You were looking here. And he did he all but point at his heart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He did everything but point like, yeah, you didn't look right here. But but what I love about this, and something that has, it, it is a trivial factoid that I picked up in a book more than a dozen years ago um, that just stayed with me so much about the way the mind and memory works. And I am not a neuroscientist. Um, I haven't even reacquainted myself with this concept enough to know if I'm fully articulating it correct. But I'm going to do my best because it's, it's central to my point. That when we m- remember something, our mind does not store memory like a, a DVR stores television shows and movies. It does not just replay it mm-hmm. beat for beat. What happens is every single time we have to recall something, then the brain, powerful as it is, right. will then go back and it will piece by piece in rapid succession, it will recreate that memory for us. And the reason that's important is because it will recreate it, but it will do so through the filter of your current sensibilities about that memory, which is why you can have the best day of your life, but if it ends with the death of a loved one, you will forever remember every happy thing that you ever had with the finality of that day, because that's the way, that's the lens through which your brain will recreate the day. And that's the way it works for every brain on the planet. It recreates memories through the lens that we see it, which is why someone who's prone to certain proclivities in their mindset see everything through that lens. It's why mental, one of a billion reasons why mental health and mental care is so important because they will see everything through that trajectory, right. literally everything. Right. Um, and so part of what I'm so, so ablaze right now about Nathan's question of how do we carry the light and how do we actively, uh, you know, produce goodness and well being in a beautiful world, I would posit, honestly, that. Um, the world is not only as we make it, but also as we choose to see it, as we the, the 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 lens through which we choose to see it. And I know that there's a lot of statements that could be made about rose-colored glasses and not seeing things, you know, like, oh, well, you're not seeing the true reality. Because a frustration of mine that I've had for some time is when people say, well, I'm a realist, and really what they mean is I'm a pessimist. Because when mm-hmm. they say, I'm a realist, they are usually expressing a very sort of dour, hard reality in the, in the scope of mm-hmm. things. They're, they, are, they are expressing things that will be difficult to obtain, difficult to achieve, difficult to delight in. And that has come to be the way they define realists and reality. And to me, I'm like, no. In the real, yes, we need a hero who goes beyond John Murdoch. But perhaps we can become a hero like John Murdoch, where we can see and undermine the machinations of the things around us and actively in our own little <laughs> literal sphere of influence, where we can tune things to, to turn around to this way. We can actively, forcefully, and intentionally begin to spin that towards 
the, the star in this film towards the light and begin to actively sort of try to, in an intentional way, recontextualize the things that we've experienced through a new and brighter hope for what is to come. And I don't think that that is a I really actively don't think that's a denial of the hardships at play. I don't think that that is a uh, a blissful, ignorant, matrix-like, because the matrix keeps coming up, a blissful, ignorant, matrix-like illusion. I think that's the, the, the difference, is that when, when we're looking at this thing, at this city, at this city and the stars, when you're looking at it, it could be very easy to say, like, well, that city's dark. And the, the reality is, whether or not that city is dark depends on where it's facing. And that's all it depends on. That the city itself does not produce any sort of light. It does not have any sort of source of light beyond the electricity in its little buildings that it can produce. Mm-hmm. So its brightness depends upon where it's facing. And my final sort of comment that I make, because I always like to you know, bring it all the way back to the garden. Boy, I love me some Garden of Eden is the 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 story that we have in the book of Genesis about the garden of Eden there were two trees in the garden the first tree was mm-hmm. the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the second tree was the tree of life and i feel like in the story this is the piece of it that i'm latching onto at the moment in the story they ate from the tree of knowledge and therefore lost access to the tree of life and i feel like they're there is much broader context to be explored. Listeners, co-hosts, come with me for this one little piece of it. I think there are times in life where you can choose between I have to know and you can choose between I have to live. And you can choose between I have to understand or you can choose to get back to leftovers to let the mystery be and move forward and face something a little bit brighter. And I'm not, I'm actively not talking about willful denial and willful ignorance. I'm talking about the the lens that we choose to pivot our memories and to pivot our futures and to pivot our thoughts towards. When the scriptures talk about taking the thoughts captive for Christ, I think too many times people have contextualized to say, like, don't think bad things or Jesus is going to be mad at you. And I see that, and I see that more as like, no, my brain is going away from me. My thoughts are going away from me. My mind is racing. Let me, let me cease for a second. Let me pause for a second. Let me hold this. And yes, and pivot and turn and put this into a, a different place. The times in these season, the amount of days and times that I have stopped in my tracks and said, I do not have the, I, I'm going to get super religious for a second. So y'all just forgive me and love me and whatever. So I have actively, presently, repeatedly in this season prayed in my prayers and said, Lord, I do not have the capacity to be generous. I do not have the capacity to be forgiving. I do not have the capacity to be gracious. I don't have the capacity to be loving. People are pissing me off. This is, this is stressing me out. I am carrying too much. So in my prayers, I specifically say, but I know and I believe that you do have that capacity. So can I have some of yours? Can I share some of what you have 
limitless and boundless resources of goodness and grace and generosity and mercy and peace because I do not have the capacity. So Nathan, I love you, brother. You ask, how do we carry the light? I don't think we do. I think we turn towards it and I think we begin to reflect it. And I think that's how we do that. And I recognize it's just a, a, a pivot of semantics. Sure. But in the context of Dark City, that is literally what he does. He literally turns the world upside down to where, where it was facing directly into the dark abyss. Now it turns and it faces a bright star. And yes, Anna does not remember being who she was. But I do get the impression at the end there, and I think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a good uh, uh, connecting point, that what she does have is is they meet afresh and anew, and they choose to walk into the sunrise, if you will, um, together. And, and I do find that quite lovely and beautiful, and their, their, their relationship is starting afresh and starting anew. And I think those are the capacities that we do have even in this time, that we have more power than we realize to it's not spin doctoring it is simply repentance is the word that just came to mind it is simply turning around it is simply turning away and saying i was i was facing that and now i'm going to make an active deliberate choice to face this and i believe the more we do that the more we begin to reflect that and might just change the perception and and concepts of the people around us and that's 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 dark city, y'all. Uh, I I I agree <laughs> strongly. <laughs> I and I want to add to it. I don't want to detract from a single thing you said because I sure. agree. I mean, utterly. The only point that I want to like quibble with is I don't think that what that is is only a semantic difference. Mm. Um. Mm carrying versus like reorienting because I because I think that if we look for deeper or greater capacities for vital just crucial life giving things like that if, if we look for that right here primarily not as not as where we see it um, manifested or where we see it um, flowing out of um, as it arrives. If we see this as the source, I think that we're going to run into trouble because I think that there just is not a lot in us because we get exhausted. Yeah. Because we are periodically yeah. just calling down all the schadenfreude, right? Just... Mm-hmm. In our own, in our own closet, laughing at the mishaps that befall the fools, right? Yeah, um, right, right. We, I'm a creature, and I don't. That's just admitting that I am created. Mm. I am not created to be the inexhaustible source of any damn thing. Yeah, right. And if right. I expect anything like that to arise in me. I will disappoint myself. And when the time comes for me to like act in a way to help and love others, I, I will, I will fail them. Mm, And mm. that's why I, it's a, it's a lexical difference, but I don't think it's just semantic. I think that it's huge that what the 
the task is, is reorientation. And I love it because, yes, repentance, metanoia, turning back. It, it is re-angling yeah. the mirrors so that the, like the climax of legend, the little shaft of light can bounce across all the mirrors and yes. take out yeah. Tim Curry, Satan. Um, <laughs> take out darkness, literally, a, in that a, film. A, yeah, AKA yeah, yeah. Tim Curry. Yes. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's what is the source and it's how am I not in alignment with that source? That is mm-hmm. huge. That and, and is just there. Yes. That, that I don't summon into being, but yeah. turning it and urging other others, whether it's individuals or structures, and, and I don't mean or, because both, never one or the other. The entire created yeah panorama in urging it to turn and reflect that the sun yes because that won't go out yes and i and i'll mention this to the the i mentioned earlier when we were talking about the leftovers the plato's allegory of the cave well the allegory of the cave for people who have not heard of it is it basically starts and i'm going to butcher some of the paraphrasing here but it basically is imagine that there's these people who have only ever lived their life chained up in a cave where they're facing the cave wall and their concept of reality is the shadows they see on that wall and that's that's as much as they see and so in that allegory as you turn that's one level, and then you emerge from the cave, and that's another level. And it all is just about moving into, and obviously Plato's allegory talked about like higher understandings and things like that, but, um, and was talking about like, you know, the natural sciences and geographies and things like that. But, um, the, I think the, what we're all discussing here is this idea of intentional, turning of our thoughts, minds, and perspectives, and that we will, what we normally see only as shadow and two-dimensional, that if we can, if we can pivot and to see something a bit beyond ourselves, and I think that's really what it comes to, is we keep thinking that what we can see and feel and what we can experience and what we know, like, uh, look at look at uh, poor crazy detective guy. He's like, I found a way out, and his way out was to jump in front of a freaking train in Dark right. City. You know, right? And yep. it's like it's like no, there is there is something stronger and greater and better that we're able to do. And man, just I don't even know that I have the power. I don't even know that I have that 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 I'm up for it. But I want to be a person who's up for, you know what, I am going to try to turn and face it so that I can begin to reflect it. And maybe as I reflect it, then others will turn towards it and face it in my little, you know, sphere of influence or whatever. And, and let that be sort of my combat. And so when it said, when he says, you know, Hey, you looked in the wrong place, you know, it's like, I can choose to know, or I can choose to live. And in those (laughs) right here, (laughs) you know, and, um, and I think that's, I don't know, that's, that's largely what this conversation is, is, is sparking in me and, and igniting me for. And, and Nathan, Ian and I have gone on for quite some time. Uh, I don't know if you feel that the answers we've given have been of any, uh, substance to your question, but, uh, wouldn't it be funny if you just came back and said, no, no, you totally <laughs> <understand>. <laughs> yeah. They weren't. Uh, they, they weren't. <laughs> And that's the show, everyone. <laughs> uh, y- um, 
I mean, the good news is I did not have a prescribed expected answer. So, you know, it's more just, um, food for thought. And, and I think that it is a burdensome moment and trying to, you know, trying, trying to carry more than is assigned can be just as, uh, toxic as carrying the absolute wrong things. If that makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think my takeaway is in line with where we're all kind of mutually at, which is, you know, the, I really liked and, and Reed, you, you inadvertently pinged something in my brain that Ian, I, Ian and I have even talked about just off pod before, but like we, we tried, we try to use the, the material resources to, to turn us towards the sun. And I'm not being silly evangelistic, uh, evangelical S O N. I just mean using the metaphor we're talking about here when it's even that is itself transactional, right? It's just, right. It's mathematics. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when not to get pithy, it's not transaction. We need it's transformation and being able to the, the, the crappy part, if I'm being perfectly blunt, uh, perfectly blunt is there is no simple answer to that. Mm. You know, I mean, it's, it's, we speak in metaphor because it's, it's what we're, it's the, it's the way we know how to articulate things that can't be articulated. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, that's, I guess yeah. that's kind of all I got right now. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I think that's a, I mean, I do think that's a pretty good place for us to sort of resolve. I always like to say if anybody's got anything absolutely burning that they have to get out, Save speak it. now or hold oh. your peace. Yeah. No. <laughs> Skip it. Skip it. Right, Forget right. it. Uh, so, but you guys good to go to the fog meter on, on old dark city here? Let's do it. You good, Ian? Oh, I'm desperate for it, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> it's so perfect. That's so perfect. That's so perfect. <laughs> All right. So the fog meter is our is our very specific metric of fear and God. We rate these films, whatever material we cover, on their scares and their substance. So um, I'll lead the charge in the conversation on fear with Alex Proyas's Dark City. Um, it's not a terribly scary film. It is definitely macabre and it is definitely, um, uh, creepy in its own sensibilities. Um, but I'm going to rank it a bit low on the fear meter and give it a three. Um, just because I feel like it's not a terribly frightening or, or unnerving, uh, film. What say you, Nathan? I think it's funny. You may not have known you did this, but it sounded like you said definitely in Patty, (laughs) Patty speak. Um, (laughs) that was, that was just pure accent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was just terrible. Um, uh, yeah. uh, A three. Okay. It's imagery is strong, but there's not much beyond that. What say you, Ian? Uh, I'm going to give it a four. Um, because. I was watching it right here, and I just kept, like, looking over my shoulder. I was just worried that someone was going to open the door at the wrong moment, and they're going to be like, you're watching a movie with boobies. What's 
what's going on? <laughs> so <laughs> there, oh, there well. was there was some terror creeping. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. All right, all right. I'll take so that. Four. Yeah, so four. Um, sure. Nathan, what would you say for the God meter? Um, because I'm recognizing that it's a first viewing and it is playing with a lot of familiar tropes, but recognizing there may be some more depth that I'm just not apprehending. I'll give it a five for the God meter. Okay. What would you say, Ian? I'm going to give it a seven. I think that when Kiefer Sutherland isn't just full on explaining (laughs) exactly in detail what's going on, I think that it explores how memory correlates with identity in an interesting way and asks if that's determinative. And yeah, we just get an awesome Jesus juke with uh, angling the city of man <laughs> straight towards the sun. That's um, right. And, I, and I'm, I feel bad even saying that that's a Jesus juke because... No, no. You shouldn't feel bad about that. <laughs> Other, exactly thing, other things, maybe, seven. but yeah, not bad. F- feel bad. Yeah. yeah, there's, there's so many other things. things. <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you, do you have Nathan a couple hours? <laughs> oh my gosh! Like when you no. when when you know when uh oh man I can't find when you say I deserve this donut I'm like yeah you know <laughs> I did a little <laughs> a little a little bit well, you know, <laughs> push little child Ian into the- <laughs> you know kind of. <laughs> No, we use a finger. We didn't even look around. <laughs> right, yep. Yo, <laughs> right. Off the edge. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so uh, I'm going to give this on the God Meter. I'm going to give this an eight. Um, I feel like it's. I feel like it's got some really big ideas. Uh, I honestly, it would probably be a full bore 10 for me if there was stronger characterization and if the, if the central narrative itself had more uh, actual depth and substance to it. I'm, I'm pulling that eight straight from my, my views of the concept and of the resolution of the concept. Um, so, I, yeah, I would give that uh, an eight for the God Meter. I think it does have a really profound idea at, at its heart that it, it obviously from this conversation excites a lot of things in my imagination. So that means that we give, we three give Dark City, directed by Alex Proyas and starring Rufus Sewell, William Hurt, Jennifer Connelly, and Kiefer Sutherland, uh, not to mention, or not to forget about Riff Raff from Rocky Horror Picture Show. We give it a five <laughs> out of ten on the fog meter. So uh, that is, uh, that is, that is uh, a, a decent rating for the fog meter standards. Um, but the more important question, I'll lead with mine. Um, is would you recommend Dark City? I absolutely would. I think Dark City is uh, is a really fascinating film. I think it's uh, powerful in a lot of ways. Um, I would even recommend trying to view it at least twice um, because I think it does have some rewards for repeat viewings of it. But I would recommend it. What say you, Ian? Oh, I I would I would <laughs> I would get right off on the evangelistic foot and say like, did you know? That this is like Roger Ebert's like ultimate movie of all time. Did you know that the Matrix trilogy shamelessly, derivatively borrowed everything? Wow. Like, do you want to see movies from the last twenty years? Watch yeah. Dark City. Have you seen any genre material from the last two decades? <laughs> You've seen some version of Dark City. You have, you have. Um, Nathan, what would you say? Would you recommend it? Man, I'm in a rough run 
uh, lately. Um, based on you, you articulated it well, Reed articulated it well. You said definitely if you've seen it twice, <laughs> or however you said that. I'm like, well, I've only seen it once, so right <laughs> I now, would recommend you see it twice. <laughs> right? What'd you say? I said I would recommend you see it twice. Right <laughs> after one, not really. <laughs> um, not even again. That's that's a one-time viewing. A lot of life happening didn't plug in exactly to what I think it's after, and especially what you guys have responded to. Um, can recognize some value there that may incite a subsequent viewing in the future. But after one, I'm like, eh, eh, I got, I got the Matrix. What do I need Dark City for? <laughs> That's really, really funny. I know Kung Fu. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So that puts yet another episode of Hashtag In The Morning in the books. Um, And uh, Ian, as always, it's such a pleasure to have you back on the show, brother. Uh, Really, really appreciate it. We will be seeing you again, if not before then, certainly when we conclude this entire series with Avengers Endgame. Um, But next week... (laughs) <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Uh, but next week, we are going to be taking and and pay particular attention to this. Normally, uh, in TV Guideposts, we cover two episodes of The Leftovers. Next week, we are only covering one. So next week, acquaint yourself with episode nine of season two. But we are also going to be having an extended conversation about the film by Alejandro Amenabar called The Others from, uh, I believe, 2001. I uh, don't have it pulled up right in front of me to verify that, but uh, but it's a very popular film starring Nicole Kidman um, and uh, a couple of other surprises that we'll leave for, for that episode. Uh, surprises to me, anyway. So check out Alejandro Amenabar's The Others. I don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, check out The Others and acquaint yourself with Episode 9 of Season 2 of The Leftovers. And uh, Ian, thank you again. Nathan, as always, thank you so much thank for you. having these conversations with us. We appreciate it. And um and so as we say on every episode, the fear from of God the is the beginning. Of my heart. Uh from the yeah, from right here. From right here where it all happens. Um <laughs> not here. So, <laughs> not not here. Here. Um so as we say on every episode, the fear of God is is the beginning of wisdom and not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way uh rejoicing. We'll see you next week, everybody. See you guys. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and news, as well as for merchandise and how to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God, on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music, and to Tyler Smith and MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi, everybody!